One of, uh, one of my favourite things to do uh, in a reflective kind of sense is just to reflect back on my life and see what were the kind of the, the pivotal moments in my life that actually made a significant difference. Because uh, you often, uh, I, I think, uh, at least in my experience, you often get to the point uh, sometimes in your life where you think this is a really, really big decision. It's going to make a big impact on the future of my life. And, uh, and I think there are big decisions that have a huge impact on your life. But as I reflect on my life, it's, uh, I actually see a lot of small decisions that didn't seem that significant at the time that had a massive impact on my life and kind of shaped the direction that I was going. Almost decisions that were made on a whim, where you just kind of think, yeah, I'll do that. Uh, that's a good idea. And then all of a sudden, this whole section of your life kind of opens up and God does something through this, uh, this particular a whimsical decision that you actually made. It's that irony, isn't it? That something really small can have a really, really big impact. And what we're actually looking at today in, uh, in Acts chapter 2 is uh, a small um, moment, it appears, but a massive moment, like a huge moment. Um, and that's why the, the sermon today is titled uh, A Big Little Moment. Um, and, and the, uh, the irony of this massive moment is, is Luke in the, gospel, in the book of Acts only commits four verses to this massive moment. That's it. Like you get, there's this, there's this blinding moment that kind of happens that changes a whole bunch of stuff in human history uh, for the future and he commits four verses to it. And I wonder... When we read it in a minute, many of you would know this is the, uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Um, I wonder where you would rank this event in human history. Where, where would it sit? Now, clearly, the life, death and resurrection of Jesus is going to be number one, right? I could just square number one away, but where, I wonder where you'd put it. In terms of the effect that it's actually had on the world and on people in the world, it's massive. This is a massive event. You know, we know from last week that, um, you know, Jaden preached about how there were 120 people um, in a house. 120 people in Jerusalem. All these people out there not having a clue what's going on with this 120. That's it, 120 people in this house. And this event happens, and it's, and it's a massive, massive event that has all these knock-on effects effects and downstream effects for centuries and millennia even to now i reckon it's in the top five <laughs> all right maybe maybe the top three all right uh, maybe some of you going i reckon i could argue it's it's number two it probably could be you know and it, it actually leaves um it leaves me as i reflected on where you'd put it in your uh, in your top five or your, or your top ten it just left me thinking how do you how do you even how do you even speak of such things as a preacher how do you even speak of such things if you if you're talking about an event that has changed the course of human history connected to the life death and resurrection of jesus um, who's, who's worthy to actually speak of such things? But you've got me, so I will anyway. And I'll have a crack and, uh, and the Lord will uh, hopefully uh, be active uh, amongst us today as we do. So if you can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, 
want to read the first 21 verses. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 to 21. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, the they is probably the 120 um, from the, uh, the previous chapter. And the place there, Luke's not really that concerned about where it is, but you'll notice in, uh, in verse uh, 2 there that he actually mentions it's a house. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That's it. That's the event. Four verses, it's done. All right? Now he's just going to start telling you about the effect that it had on people around the place and, and Peter's kind of explanation of it. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language, right? So there's a commotion going on, a crowd's gathering, all right? We know that at the end of Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people give their lives to Jesus, all right? So this is getting to be quite some crowd, okay? At this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language and they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language or dialect? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judicia and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. Verse 14, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapour of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I think what we see in this passage this morning, this is where we're going, we see a supernatural event with a supernatural cause for a supernatural mission. Let's talk in. The supernatural event. There's something here that is going on that is supernatural. What's supernatural? Supernatural is something that can't actually be defined by science. It goes beyond the realms of the natural world. And the bottom line, folks, is you just have to get this, that this is different to what you get told every single day. You get told in our culture that there is nothing other than the natural. That's all there is. There's nothing else. 
There's no supernatural. There's nothing outside of those bounds. Atheistic evolution tells us that the world happened by accident and nature is all that there is. And I want to say to you that that is a crazy leap of faith. All right? For all of the atheist objections that Christians are the people that actually take a leap of faith to say that everything, you, the world, the universe, the universes we haven't discovered yet, it all came about by some crazy accident. What are the chances? <laughs> what are the chances? That's a massive leap of faith. American scientist Carl Sagan said this. He said, The cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. Paralleling the, uh, the scriptures. It's a massive leap of faith. Now, the reality of believing um, that all that there is is the natural has a whole bunch of really unhelpful downstream effects. Let me give you a couple. What are you going to do with love? If everything is, if, if the only thing that exists, if Carl Sagan's right and the only thing that exists is the physical, natural world, there's no such thing as love. You know why? Because it's just chemicals. It's, self-sacrifice is not even a thing. It's just someone in a particular context who, who, um, who had the right chemicals going through their head and the right experiences and the right genes and it all comes together and they give their life for someone. It's not really love. It's just a thing that happens. It's just a natural phenomenon. Or even you could go into... I'd love to go into this a whole bunch, but we just don't have time today. You could go into thinking. What even is rationality in thinking if everything is natural? It's not even really a thing at that point. You know, what, what about morality? You know, I've heard people say that the focus of all morality is just survival of the fittest, right? It's just the fittest surviving. That's, that's the point of it. That, and when you actually believe in a natural world, atheistic evolution says it's just a natural world, it's about survival of the fittest, right? That's kind of all you're left with. That's kind of your core morality at that point, right? So why wouldn't you just kill off all the weak people? Do, do you get what I'm saying? Like, why wouldn't you? Just kill them off. Get rid of them. Get rid of the sick people. Get rid of the people that can't walk properly. Get rid of all of those people so that we can end up with this super race. Do you see what happens when, when you believe that the natural world is all that there is and you believe in atheistic evolution? You just end up with some uncomfortable and damaging downstream effects. Now, living in a world that tells you that the supernatural doesn't exist runs into trouble not just because of those things but it actually runs into trouble because there are phenomena in the world that can't be explained by science and there are phenomena in the world that won't be explained by science they just won't be and some of you had some experience with that Gary uh, Habermas is a distinguished uh, professor he did his PhD on the resurrection and he's done quite a bit of research into uh, near-death experiences as lots of people have had near-death experiences but the ones that he's particularly interested in uh, near-death experiences where the, um, the person who has uh, been near to death or has had a, a near-death experience um, actually sees something or knows something that they shouldn't know if they were dead and lying on a table. All right, let me read you uh, one of the, uh, the stories that he recounts. It's been 
published in a couple of pediatric uh, journals. This is a, a young girl uh, called Katie who drowned and she didn't register a pulse for 19 minutes. Right? The emergency room physician observed that he stood over Katie's lifeless body in the intensive care unit. A CT scan showed that she had massive brain swelling and she was without a gag reflex while being profoundly comatose. Dr Melvin Morse reported, when I first saw her, her pu pupils were fixed and dilated, meaning that irreversible brain damage had most likely occurred. Her breathing was performed artificially and she was given very little chance to survive. But only three days later, the girl surprisingly revived and made a full recover recovery. She just woke up. Um, Katie began repeating an incredible wealth of specific facts regarding the emergency room, her resuscitation, and even physical descriptions of the two physicians. Morse confirmed that a child with Katie's symptoms should have the absence of any brain function and therefore should comprehend nothing. Katie recalled these recent details for almost an hour. Further, during her comatose state, she said that an angel named Elizabeth allowed her to view her family at home. Katie correctly reported very specific details concerning the clothing and positions of each family member, identified a popular rock song that her sister listened to, observed her father and then watched while her mother cooked dinner. She even correctly identified the food, roast chicken and rice. Later, she shocked her parents by relating details from just a few days before. Now, you're not going to be able to prove that one with science, folks. You're just not. And it's not like this is the only near-death experience of this type that's actually happened in the world. You just need to know there is a reality to our world that you could call natural and there's a whole reality to our world that's called supernatural that you don't always see and know about. But there just is. Now, Gary Habermas is not saying this is the silver bullet for everything. He's just saying people have a soul and there is a supernatural reality to what it means to be human. And science is bankrupt in accounting for all of the things that it needs to account for. You will have stories in your life that science won't be able to account for. And you just need to know that your world is always wanting to push you into the, into the box of the natural is all that there is. And if this morning's passage does one thing, it actually shows you that the natural is not all that there is. Amen? It's just not all that there is. You know, here's the bottom line, right? Introduce God <laughs> and pretty much anything's on the table at that point, okay? If you don't believe in God and you just want to just kind of nail things down and say the natural is all there is, there's a whole bunch of restrictions, a whole bunch of problems, how are you going to account for things, how are you going to handle things, introduce God and then all options are on the table. The options are literally endless when you introduce God and that's what we see today that's what we've seen in the passage today it's a time where God showed up in a special way and he did something history changing this is an event in Acts 2 that cannot be accounted for by science right it just smashes the borders of the natural world it's unique in fact I don't know whether you notice this about a lot of the miracles that um that God does uh, in the scriptures. Anyone notice that God actually doesn't tend to do things the same way twice? Like it just doesn't. I mean, human stuff is like, oh, he came in, uh, there was a sound of a rushing wind and there's tongues of fire in people's heads, so it's going to be like that every time, right? And I would just say to you, how many times do you know in the Bible where God shows up like that? 
And then I think, and then I submit to you, how many times in the Bible does God do anything exactly the same as the previous time that he's done it? He's just, he's up to stuff. I mean, this never happens again in the book of Acts. It never happens again like this. The history of the early church in the book of Acts, it doesn't repeat. Now, what have we got? Here's the supernatural that we've got in Acts 2 verse 1 to 4. Here's the first one. Uh, you've got a sound like a blowing wind, right? Now, it wasn't a blowing wind. It just sounded like a blowing wind, okay? Well, what's the significance of wind? The significance of wind, all right? Listen to John 3 verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the, the Spirit, right? Ezekiel 37, there's this prophecy to a valley of uh, uh, dry bones that uh, Ezekiel puts out there in this vision that he has. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came upon them, sorry, came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Here's the bottom line, wind is a symbol of God's presence. It's a symbol of God's presence. And that's why we see it in Acts chapter 2, because God is present. The second one, tongues of fire. This is another symbol of God's presence. Exodus 19 verse 18. This is uh, Mount Sinai with uh, Moses and the people of Israel. Now Mo- Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Isaiah 66, for behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind. Luke 3 verse 16, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So fire is also symbolic of God's presence. Now what actually happens? You've got this sound of a blowing wind, this, these tongues of fire landing on top of people. And what happens? The people can speak in other languages. Now specifically, this is actually other dialects. So you've got all these people which uh, Luke lists that are from different regions and all of a sudden these people are speaking in tongues and they can all understand it in their own dialect. It's amazing. And Now, the bit that's amazing, and I would love to spend a bit more time on this, but does anyone here remember the Tower of Babel? The Tower of Babel was about God's power, about God's power in giving multiple languages and scattering people because the people got together and they were arrogant, they were going to build this big tower and uh, God decides, I'm going to go down and I'm going to confuse them because what they're doing is not good and I'm going to give them lots of different languages and they scatter, that's what happens. You see that this is actually the reverse of the Tower of Babel. These scattered people were there and what's God doing? He's actually bringing people together back into universe, into, into unity after this thousands of years before scattering that happened. Isn't that amazing? Now for us at the project, you just go, yeah, that's, that's, kinda, that's what he does. That's redemption, right? Redemption is not that you just throw something out and you make something new. Redemption is like you take the old thing that's busted and you bring it back and you fix it. And I reckon this is what the Spirit's up to in this moment is uh, the scattering that happened because of languages is now being reversed 
in the early church by the work of the Spirit. It was a supernatural thing. Like, he can do that. He can just spontaneously crack into another dialect that you'd never learn. But the Spirit can cause that sort of stuff to happen. That's, well, that's easy, isn't it? That's, that's, that's not as hard as creating something out of nothing, is it? No, you've got something to work with. You've got people, you've got a mouth and some vocal cords. <laughs> he can do that. So what we've got is a supernatural event with a supernatural cause. Have a look at verse 3 to 4 there with me. And, they, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Fire comes down on them. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And you just need to know this is a big deal. The first reason this is a big deal is because of who the Holy Spirit is. If you're not a Christian here today, you don't know who the Holy Spirit is. Um, the Bible teaches about there being one God in three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay? And so what we're actually talking about here and what Luke's talking about in Acts chapter 2 here is that one of the persons of God comes and lives inside of people and actually fills people up. Now you would expect if that happened that some special stuff would happen. Wouldn't you? You just go, yeah, some stuff's going to happen. Because usually wherever God's hanging out and whatever he's doing, there's some cool stuff that's going down. You know, I'd love to spend some time looking at what the Spirit gets up to in the Scriptures, but we just don't have time today. Let me give you a, a quick rundown sample. When you look up stuff about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, you, you get on to stuff like there's power in the Spirit, He's up to stuff, uh, prophecy, He's life-giving, and in the Old Testament, artistic skill and craftsmanship comes from the Spirit. Um, in the New Testament, the, the gift of the Spirit is the sign that someone's actually become a Christian and loves Jesus and is now part of his family. Tongues are a, a fruit of the, uh, the work of the Spirit. Prophecy, praise, bold witness. The Holy Spirit is powerful, but he's not merely a power. Anyone who's ever spoken to um, a Jehovah's Witness know that they actually don't believe in the Trinity. They don't believe in Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And their line on the Holy Spirit is he's just a power. He's not actually personal. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is a person. And that matters. And I want to give you a few scriptures just to uh, get you across the line here if you're not across the line. Here's the first one. Luke 12 verse 12. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now... Uh, teaching is what a person does, not what a power does. Do you see that? You, you have to be a person to teach. All right, here's the next one. Acts 5 verse 32. And we are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. How do you be a witness if you're just a power? Like you need to be a person to be a witness. Acts 15 verse 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. That just gets weird when you say the Holy Spirit's just a power. How does a power seem to feel like something is good if it's just a power? 1 Corinthians 2 verse 13. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual, teaching again. How you going? Have I got you over the line yet? Hebrews 2 verse 4, While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Right? Like, 
a will is like a personhood kind of category, right? And then Hebrews 3 verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, last time I checked, powers don't say anything. They just don't. Now, here's, here's a question which I'm, I'm just going to dip my toe in the water on this one. Okay? But I'm not going to go right into it um, today. But here's the question. Is there a difference between the way the Holy Spirit operated in the Old Testament and the way that he operates in the New? Okay? Is there a difference between the way that he operates in the Old Testament and the New? Now, I think, I think that the way that the Spirit operated mostly is similar, but the expression of the Spirit in the New Testament is different. Okay? Some of you go, man, what's even the difference between what you just told me? You can go into the Old Testament. One of the things that's typical of uh, scriptures in the Old Testament that talk about the Spirit is they speak about the Spirit coming on someone. Okay? So Numbers 11, verse 26 now, two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. Uh, you've got the, um, the story of uh, Saul. Um, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, upon Saul, and he prophesied among them. Isaiah 61, there's a prophecy there. Um, about Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So there, there is a bit of a sense in the Old Testament that the Spirit comes upon people for, for particular tasks, okay? And there's a bit of a corresponding sense in the... Well, there's a bit of a shift. I shouldn't say corresponding. There's a bit of a shift in the New Testament where the Spirit actually fills people. So some people actually say that in the Old Testament, the Spirit comes upon people. In the New Testament, the Spirit kind of gets inside of them. And, uh, and, and that's one of the significant differences. And I'm pretty sympathetic to that, but I'm not 100% a believer in it, right? Because it looks like there's a little bit more going on in some other passages where the Spirit is doing some stuff on the inside as well in the Old Testament. But it makes sense. What we actually see in Acts chapter 2 is that um, the Spirit fills the, the people that are there. And, and the filling bit actually makes a whole lot of sense throughout the Scriptures in the story of God. Why? Because I think one of the themes you actually see running through the scriptures is this theme of temple. All right? Some people actually argue that the Garden of Eden was a kind of temple. What's a temple? A temple is where God dwells and where humanity actually, actually gets to interact with God and where he dwells. So you've got the Garden of Eden, sin comes into the world, you have a few bumpy moments along the way, then you get the tabernacle, which was the tent, all right? And that's where people would go and meet with God, the tent of meeting. And then you had Solomon's temple, all right? You've got this development of temple along the way and then Jesus come and Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. He's talking about his body. So Jesus' body actually becomes a temple where God dwells and people can connect with God. Right? And then you get into the back end of the New Testament. What actually happens is that the church becomes the temple and in 1 Corinthians, um, Paul actually talks about the fact that people's individual bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. How are you going? You doing okay? So the bottom line here is that it makes complete sense. If God likes to dwell in a temple and my body's a temple and we as a church are a temple, it makes sense that he's actually going to come and live inside of me. He'll come and he'll fill me, which is what we actually see in Acts 
2. And the fascinating thing I think that we see in Acts 2, and this is what I think is the significant difference between the Old Testament and uh, the filling of the Spirit in the, uh, the New Testament, this is the big difference, right? And hear me on this, is that it's an all play in the New Testament, all right? This is the big difference because I think there are some similarities between the way that the Spirit does work in the New Testament and the way He does it in the Old Testament. But I think one, the big thing that changes is that it's an all play. Because in the Old Testament, you'd kind of get the Spirit for a while and it seems like the Spirit would go if the Spirit wanted to leave you. It'd kind of be reserved for the prophets and the priests and the kings. Like you just, you didn't hear a lot of stuff about regular folk, just having the spirit kind of rush upon them. There's just not a whole lot of that sort of stuff going on. But you get to Acts chapter 2 and it actually says, tongues of fire were on every single person's head and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they started speaking in tongues. And what we actually see here in Acts chapter 2 is like it's not a temporary kind of filling. It, it just seems to be a permanent kind of filling. We kind of learn that from the context, from the sayings of Jesus. You know, Acts chapter 11, the disciples, uh, the apostles later on talk about, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as it had on us at the beginning. Now, what's the relevance to this What's the relevance of this personally? Massive. You don't just have a power that lives inside of you if you love Jesus. You have a person, right? And no one who loves Jesus gets left out. Now that, in human history, is massive. absolutely massive he comes to live in every single person who loves jesus the blessing of the spirit comes to everyone listen to what jesus said to the disciples in john 14 verse 17 think about how personal this is right you know him the holy spirit he's talking about listen to this for he dwells with you and will be in you it's like he was with them, but then it's going to be an inside job big time. And it's going to be for everyone. That's what we see in Acts chapter 2. Now, a supernatural event with a supernatural cause for a supernatural mission. Come with me to, um, to verse 12. Verse 12 to 21. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, I want you to keep your thinking caps on here, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Here's the bottom line. The spirit's going to come to everyone and everyone's going to prophesy. So here's my question. 
How will everyone prophesy if not everyone gets the prophetic gift? Like 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 makes it really clear that not everyone gets the prophecy gift. So how does everyone prophesy when the Spirit gets given out if not everyone has the prophetic gift? That's a good question, right? Now Moses, way back in Numbers 11, listen to what he said about prophecies. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? This is what Moses says, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his Spirit on them. Like Moses knows if the Spirit comes upon people, one of the things that's going to happen is prophecy. And he's going, he just longed that everyone got to have the Spirit in a way that caused them to be a prophet. So what, what are we talking about? <laughs> well, when you get right into it, prophecy is actually about making God known. You know, God being known actually comes from Jesus through the preaching of the Gospel. You know, what makes God known? People telling about him. And speaking of him, that's what prophecy is. You know, and you get into visions and dreams, and what are they? Well, they're part of making God known. I don't think that what Joel's talking about and what Peter's saying here in Acts 2 is actually the gift of prophecy per se, that people get to be, have prophetic words they're going to say. I think what Peter's actually saying is everyone now gets to make God known because of the Spirit. And interestingly, what does Peter do immediately after this miraculous event he makes God known he actually engages in prophecy straight after it and he tells the people what it actually means he makes known who Jesus is and what the gospel is you see the spirit changes people to make people a bold witness to his work and to God himself that's what the spirit does now Who here would like to see a little more miraculous happening around the place? He would, right? But let me tell you something. Miraculous is not going to be enough on its own. And I don't say that in any way to put down the miraculous. Like I say, let's have as much of that as God wants to do around the place. But I just need to let you know it's not going to be enough. You know why? Because some people here were amazed and other people made jokes about the fact that people were drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. Like it's just not enough. It's not enough to have something miraculous. Like someone could come in who's a quadriplegic today and there could be a whole bunch of people that don't know Jesus here at church and someone could pray for them and they could stand up out of their chair and they could be completely healed and it wouldn't be enough unless someone actually brought an explanation as to who God was and what reality was. You know, you've you've probably heard the uh, quote of, uh, I think it was Irenaeus, he said, preach the gospel and if necessary use words. Well, the gospel is nothing if it's not good news. And news is not something that you just live out primarily. News is something that you tell. That's what an evangelist is. An evangelist is someone who's a teller of good news. Because miracles don't convince people on their own. You know this one out of Luke chapter 16. This is a story of... um, You know this. You know this saying. This is a story uh, of Abraham in there. Um, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced. If someone should rise from the dead, you know we could have the most fancy of miracles, and people just won't be convinced. 
because miracles are not meant to do the job on its own. And so here's, here's the bottom line. When you go to work this week, right, you, you could get the opportunity to pray for someone. And I think you should pray for people at work as much as you can, all right, as much as they'll let you. And when they don't let you, you just pray quietly without them knowing, all right? And you know, something that could happen at your work this week is you could pray for a miracle and a miracle could happen this week. And that would be great. Who thinks that would be great? It'd be great. But here's the bottom line. It won't be enough. The miracle on its own won't be enough because you actually need to teach people what the miracle actually means. You need to teach people about who God is. People need to be told the gospel. And the Spirit has been given to everyone to make the gospel really clear. So this is, let me wrap up here. We're all on deck, folks. You've all been given the Spirit. It's not just the prophets, the priests and the kings. No one's on the outer now. You love Jesus, you're in his family, you've got the Spirit. And one of the things the Spirit does is he comes and you become a bold witness to the gospel to tell people about who Jesus is before Jesus comes back. And God wants to energize you by his spirit to live a supernatural life. Are you comfortable with that? Are you? Like, I wonder how all of us would go. Because I know, like, one of the realities in the project, right, is we have, like, a really broad kind of spectrum of people with denominational backgrounds, right? And so preaching often is kind of like trying to thread the needle, okay? Because you've got Presbyterians, like ex-Presbyterians, ex-Brethrens, ex-this, ex-Lutherans, Pentecostals, Charismatics. And you're a great bunch. And it's... And it's great to have you all together. But it is a little like threading the needle sometimes. And I actually wonder, how would you actually have gone if you were sitting in that house when it was getting loose? <laughs> right? Because that's what was going on. It was just getting loose. Like the spirit was up to some stuff. And it was, it was like, and you're sitting there and you're going, oh, I, don't know, I can't understand any of those languages because I talk the same language as them. And, and they're... You know, they're speaking in this other gibberish thing and I don't even know what that is. It's just getting loose. Like, how would you go? There's tongues of fire on people's heads, there's the sound of wind, and yet it's still on the inside of the house. Would you have been okay with it? What if, uh, what if we, we prayed today and you just broke out speaking in tongues? Would that be okay? Now, some of you are going, yeah, yeah, well, give me more of that. And some of you are going, I'm listening. <laughs> I'm thinking. What if someone else did? What if the person next to you, what if they busted out in tongues today or they, I don't know. What if something happened today? Would you just be going, oh, come on, no, we need a policy on tongues now. You know, like a church policy. We've got to control that kind of stuff. 
What, what if God just wants to break out and do something supernatural? Are you, do you actually want that? Because I'll tell you, it, it always gets loose when God does that. You know why? Because it just busts outside of your control mechanisms. And it busts outside of your understanding. And it kind of goes back to the, you know, the scientific thing where we just want to understand everything and be able to have control over it. And then God kind of breaks in and a whole bunch of stuff happens and you just kind of go, whoa, what was that? Now, I, I think it is important to answer the question, what was that? Because I think that's what Peter does. He answers of what is that? All right, and there's no point in just having a whole bunch of stuff going on and people getting confused and people going, oh, they're crazy. They need to go and see a psych, all right? Because they're crazy. But here's the bottom line. God can just do some of that stuff, right? I, um, my background is in the Presbyterian Church, and this is not a thing. Please don't hear me saying this is a thing about tongues, right? It's not all about tongues, but there's tongues in another language and there's tongues in, uh, we, we covered this last year, there's tongues in the way that you uh, can communicate with God. Um, you can go back to a message from last, last year to check this out. But the, uh, my background is in the Presby Church, right? And the Presbyterian Church actually is officially theologically cessationist, which means that they don't actually believe in the uh, spiritual gifts still being in operation like that, um, like you see in, the, uh, in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, okay? And there's this story, and I'll, I'm going to keep it really vague, but I actually know who this is, and I know this story. There's this story of this um, Presbyterian minister who, out of the blue not even looking for it, starts praying in tongues, all right? Just starts praying in tongues. And uh, he wasn't looking for it. I don't even think he really believed in it. And it just happened. So you know what he did? He just kept it quiet for a while. And it kept, hap- kept happening. And um, he ended up uh, being open about this gift that God had given him. And uh, as it turned out to be... Under- I think it would have been a really precious gift for him. He came out and he talked about it and that created trouble because all of a sudden the theology of the church that he ascribes to and was working and actually didn't fit uh, where he was at. Okay, And this is not in any way a criticism of the Presbyterian church. Okay, They've done lots of good things and they continue to do lots of good things. But what was my point? My point was that something happened to him that was outside of his categories and he had the boldness and the willingness to follow Jesus in the midst of something that was outside of his categories. And I think it would be good for us to be like that. Because the other alternative, uh, the alternative to that is that you just don't, some of that stuff, I just think, just won't happen. So we don't have to talk ourselves into it and whip ourselves up into a frenzy, but um, could you be okay with it? What about this? Even go a step further and the conservatives are going to get the shakes with me saying this, right? But um, could you even ask God for it and, and want it? That would be good, eh? I think it'd be good for us to have everything that God has for us. And uh, I don't know about you, but when I read scripture, God does things that make my head spin. And he does them pretty regularly. But they're good. They're good. Does anyone have a, uh, this, is, this is just off the cuff, does anyone have a question about any of that? It's not going to be on the video or the recording or anything, but um, 
Yeah, maybe we should have a band up. Does anyone have a question about any of that? I'm promising I'm going to be able to answer it. Yeah, it does. Yeah, you should desire, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Yeah, you should ask for the Spirit, ask the Spirit for things. I mean, the one that probably freaks people out the most is uh, tongues. Um, but uh, one Corinthians twelve to fourteen, I think, makes it pretty clear it's a blessing. So, you know, you could ask for it. I've asked for it a whole bunch of times. I don't have it. So I don't know what that means for some of you charismatic Pentecostal folk. You just go, okay, well, okay, it's, we need to get a better pastor than this guy because he doesn't have that gift. But Another question? Way, way, way back at the start of the um, spiritual gift series that I did last year, I, um, the very first message was, how does your expectation affect the way that things happen? And uh, two of the things that I actually said about how it affects what happens, one of them is that your expectation affects what happens because you see more things going on that you would have missed if you had a different expectation because it didn't fit into your categories. The other reason why... Um, your expectation affects the things that happen is because God's a father and he's personal and he actually responds to personal requests. And, um, and so when you, ask, when you expect stuff to happen, you tend to ask him for more stuff and he actually responds personally to you more often. Um, so we should, we should ask him. Who would like the uh, power of the Holy Spirit to be more evident in them, in their workplace? Yeah? Like it's a thing, right? Like that, that's what we're doing in Acts. It's a thing. Like you get in there and they start saying stuff and stuff starts shifting and moving around the place, you know? Don't you want that? Don't you want that with your friends, with your next door neighbor, with your family? Well, one of the things you need to do is you need to pray for a filling of the Spirit. That's what you need to do. Uh, Ephesians 5.18 says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, it's not like a container, all right? It's not like you kind of, you get filled, then you're full, all right? There seems to be, in the Scriptures, these different kinds of filling that you can get for different kinds of tasks, okay? That's what it seems to be. So, you know what I think you should be doing? You should actually be asking to be filled with the Spirit for particular tasks, and then see what happens. You do that? I hope you do. Because it's a lame life that is just a natural life only, isn't it? Or it's just mere addition. One plus two plus three equals six. Just have to think about it. But we live lives like that sometimes, don't we? right it's just like i'll get up and i'll put my effort in here and i'll do that thing there and i'll do that thing there and if we just add it all up that's what we get and i'll just say to you that god actually i don't i don't think god has is particularly interested in that kind of life for his children 
He's not interested in a life of uh, mere addition. He's, um, I often talk about how uh, the Holy Spirit brings the magic. You know, we, we just bring the stuff that we have and he, he brings the magic. And uh, so we should ask him to bring some magic. Now, he can do whatever he wants. All right? We don't, we're not going to twist his arm or something or arm wrestle him and beat him in some kind of competition and now he has to do what you... And that's sometimes what we think about prayer, right? So prayer is like this competition where we're just going to go up against him. We're going to say a really fancy prayer. It's going to be theologically correct and it'll have some really nice terminology on it. We'll sweet talk him and then all of a sudden, ah, he has to do it. And then you can fast, right? Because you can fast. It's like, see, I'm not going without food. Now you have to do what I'm asking you to do. You can do prayer that way or you can actually come to God as his child and say, I'd just like some more and I'd like you to fill me and I know that you've got tasks for me to do because um, your word says that. And I'd like to have everything that I can have from you to be able to do all of these things I need to do. And I want you to be really dynamically active in every section of my life. That's better, isn't it? That's not, that's not lame anymore. <laughs> and I'm not putting you down. Like, there's a whole bunch of stuff. There's a whole, a whole bunch of ordinary and mundane stuff that people have to do. All right? Not the least of which is mums. Okay? But don't you just want to know that there's something bigger going on than changing a nappy? Or disciplining, disciplining your kid for the same thing that they've done 15,000 times already? Or sweeping the floor like, man, God, tell me that there's a bigger thing going on than just the natural that's right in front of me right now. Amen?